Psilocybin activates this receptor, produces this set of effects specific for psychedelics. And people can experience, you know, unusual visions, unusual sensations. Some memories can come up. Uh, but mostly people have the ability to look at their life narrative uh, from a different perspective. They are kind of unencumbered by their previous patterns and convictions. So they can reassess, reevaluate their life narratives and generate new insights that can potentially lead to changes in unproductive patterns. That's the voice of Dr. Ekaterina Malievskaya, the co-founder and chief innovation officer of Compass Pathways, a mental health care company dedicated to accelerating patient access to evidence-based innovation like psychedelic therapy. I'm Liz Earle and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. And as you may well know by now, I am on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, last week we heard from Mary Biles. She does extraordinary investigative research explaining the incredibly wide-ranging benefits of medical cannabis. And this week, as a follow-on from that conversation, I want to dive deeper into the world of psychedelic therapy and the use of psilocybin in particular to potentially treat mental health and pain problems. Psilocybin, by the way, is a psychedelic compound found in hundreds of mushrooms, notably the one nicknamed magic mushrooms or shrooms. Well, my own interest was sparked in this when our legendary columnist at Lizard Wellbeing magazine, Eleanor Mills, wrote an article for us detailing her own experience of taking psilocybin in Jamaica. Well, initially highly sceptical, this former editor of the Sunday Times magazine, no less, concluded that it was a very powerful and positive experience for her. I was even tempted by her offer to go myself. Haven't taken that up yet, but who knows? Well, my interest was then further spiked when I watched the four-part Netflix documentary called How to Change Your Mind, where the award-winning New York Times journalist Michael Pollan put four well-known psychedelics under the spotlight namely cannabis, psilocybin, LSD, and ayahuasca. Now, he referenced a clinic starting medical trials in the UK, and as a mother of a daughter who has an ongoing, complex, and as yet unresolved chronic autoimmune neurological problem, I was determined to find out a bit more. A little digging, and I found Compass Pathways in London, and that has led me to invite their co-founder onto the podcast today. And I can't tell you how personally and professionally excited I am to be hosting this conversation. You know, with rising rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, OCD, eating disorders, and so many other neurological issues besides, I want to know from Ekaterina, is there a chance that a little brown mushroom can really heal us? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Well, Ekaterina, it's so great to have you here. And before we talk about the research Compass Pathways is doing now, I mentioned my own journey of discovery here. So I'd love to know a little bit more about you. You know, what's your background? And I'm assuming that there might have been a personal story, perhaps, that led you to co-founding the company? Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on your podcast. And indeed, there is a deeply personal story. I'm a physician. I was trained in internal medicine and I was a private hospitalist seeing, you know, pretty complex patients in New York hospitals for many, many years. And I didn't think much about psychiatry. I wrote a lot of prescriptions for antidepressants, but never really thought about in depth what happens to patients when they cross over and what refer to um, psychiatrist. And when my son went to college and came down crushing with severe depression and OCD, and we became on receiving end of mental health care in the U.S., that's when I suddenly realized that there are huge opportunities for excellence in psychiatry and mental health care. Really interesting. It's interesting, isn't it, as a mother, how that can really spur you on when you get that personal connection. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So first I thought, you know, it's just depression. It's OCD. How hard could it be? We can whip it into shape in no time. Mm. And the more experts he was seeing and the more he was treated, the worse he was getting. And I dropped everything. I stopped working and I dedicated almost two years trying to find solution for him. And on this path of trying to find solution for him, I spoke to hundreds, if not thousands of people, parents, strangers, friends, and everybody had a story. Everybody had someone in their family, their friends, or themselves suffering from ineffective treatments, side effects of the treatments, shame, disconnect, you know, unfulfilled lives, and just a lot of suffering. And I really don't know what was more traumatic for me to see my my own son suffering, not being able to help him, or to see just the scale of the problem, the magnitude, something that we, I was not really, even as a physician, aware of. And so one of the sleepless nights, I was, you know, browsing the internet and I found a research, a small study of nine patients were given psilocybin, an active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms. Uh, it was a small study done at University of Arizona that nine patients with OCD all got better the next day. Wow. Now, please don't try, don't try it at home. This no. is not an endorsement. No, sure. uh, but the signal was so interesting and so unusual for psychiatry that I woke my husband up and I said, really? you grew up in the 70s. You know something about psychedelics. 
And so we started supporting research, academic research. Then we realized that scientists do science. You know, they do interesting studies. They answer interesting questions. But to actually develop treatments and bring treatments to patients at scale mm. is a completely different set of skills. And that's how we founded the company. So, so interesting. Well, I gave a quick top line on what psilocybin is just a moment ago. But I want to hear the description from you, the expert. What are we talking about? What is psilocybin? Well, psilocybin is an active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms, one of the active ingredients in magic mushrooms, but it's actually responsible for the set of effects that are called psychedelic or mind manifesting. So imagine our brain is a circuit board and all the parts need to be connected to light up properly. And people with treatment resistant depression have, you know, certain connections not so active. And these links are mediated in part by serotonin system. So it's a widespread system of receptors that works in the brain and in the body. And psilocybin particularly attaches to and activates the serotonin receptors, in particular 2A receptor. And when, you know, psilocybin activates this receptor, it produces this set of effects specific for psychedelics. And people can experience, you know, unusual visions, unusual sensations. Some memories can come up, uh, but mostly people have the ability to look at their life narrative uh, from a different perspective. They are kind of unencumbered by their previous patterns and convictions. So they can reassess, reevaluate their life narratives and generate new insights that can potentially lead to changes in unproductive patterns. So what we have done is our, uh, we have synthesized uh, psilocybin, it's called COM360, it's a synthetic analog, and it's produced to good manufacturing practice standards. So it's predictably pure and stable. And that's what we use in our clinical trials. Mm. Interesting. It sounds like it's almost like a reboot for the brain. It's like you sort of mm-hmm. take your computer and you, you wipe it and you reprogram it, you reload the software in and all the little bugs and the defragging that, you know, techie people talk about is is done and your brain is wiped clean of of the negative impulses perhaps that have built up. Yeah, there are many, you know, metaphors that we can use to explain the effects of psilocybin. I think many of them are wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always go as well as we would like to. There are definitely benefits, but, you know, things can also go sideways mm. and you know there is no uh, no particular way of us uh, of predicting how the experience will go and one way of ensuring that people have safe and meaningful experience is to prepare them well that's what uh, one of the findings of our research and our experience with over 500 psilocybin sessions over the last few years is that you know 
care for people leading to the experience at adequate preparation matters a great deal in terms of what kind of experience they will have and whether they will have benefits from that experience. Mm. Well, we'll we'll talk about the specifics, I think, Mm -hmm. after the break. But let's just go back generally. What mushrooms are we talking about and where are they found? I mean, are are we talking about compounds that you'd find in mushrooms in the supermarket? (laughs) No, <laughs> not all mushrooms. Not 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 all mushrooms are created equal. But um, there are certain um, types of mushrooms that do have psychoactive properties, but they're not available in the supermarket. Once again, our compound is synthetic, and we're not testing mushrooms. Yes, no mushrooms were harmed in our studies. <laughs> you don't go out and forage and no. then sort of boil them up. Not us. <laughs> so, what is the the potted history here of psychedelics. I remember when I was watching How to Change Your Mind, which I thought was a fascinating documentary series. It it talked a a bit about the history there. But for those who haven't experienced watching that, you know, how long have we as a human race known that there might be something transformative here? Right. So um, in in the West, we knew about, um, you know, certain psychoactive drugs used in kind of ritualistic uh, setting by indigenous societies, you know, Native Americans, and so forth. But I think it was in the 60s, the uh, American banker Gordon Wasson and his wife went to Mexico and met with Maria Sabina, a medicine woman in Mazatec tradition. So she introduced them to the mushroom ceremonies. Gordon brought the samples of these mushrooms to his friend Albert Hoffman, who was a chemist at Sandoz. Uh, a Swiss pharmaceutical company at that time. And uh, incidentally, he was also the uh, the inventor of LSD. He discovered LSD. So Albert Hoffman synthesized as isolated and synthesized psilocybin as an active ingredient. Now, remember, that was during the time before the modern regulation, before FDA or EMA. At that time, pharmaceutical companies could synthesize interesting compounds and simply ship it to the doctors and say, we have something interesting. Why don't you try it on your patients and report back? And that's what Sanders did. So this psilocybin was shipped to multiple psychiatrists and psychologists who tried them on their patients in their private practice and reported back that people had a huge variety of experiences, some positive, some not so positive, and some horrifying. But that was before even the modern kind of methodology, trial methodology was invented. And largely the um, the data, the, the evidence was anecdotal or what we call ethnographic. So it was very difficult to make sense of it, whether the drug was really effective. Uh, but, you know, few lessons were learned during this period of time. For example, that patients do much better if they are in calm, uh, non-stimulating environment listening to uh, pleasant music. So that is sort of a tradition from that time, from the 60s, using psilocybin in private practice. Then, of course, came prohibition and the uh, psilocybin and psychedelics were, uh, became scheduled substances. And schedule one substance really means that these compounds don't have medical use and have high um, potential for abuse. 
And of course, ongoing research showed that it's the opposite, that the abuse potential or um, addiction potential of psychedelic substances is very low. And the potential for, you know, therapeutic benefit might be actually very interesting. And a lot of studies have been done that point in that direction. So since early 2000, there is a resurgence of research in psychedelics that showed very promising signals in variety of indications. Mm. You mentioned that the 70s there, how did the recreational and and party use of psychedelics get in the way back then? And and has this hindered and really sort of set back research for a number of decades into looking at its medical uses? um, I think it was a combination of factors. So I wouldn't necessarily, I, I know, you know, people say Timothy Leary, you know, sort of people like to blame Timothy Leary, but I think they're giving him too much credit for that. Who was he? Timothy Leary was one of the researchers at Harvard who was a a great proponent of psychedelics and was a very local advocate for psychedelics and is considered kind of that figure that led to prohibition. But I do think that it was multifactorial. I think it was the fact that, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was ongoing and people were actively resisting the draft in the U.S. There was, um, you know, a lot of social unrest, but there were also considerations. Uh, there, there were commercial uh, considerations from the drug companies that are, you know, were producing uh, psilocybin. And, you know, it was kind of the, the, the emergence of regulatory requirements, uh, all that made it very inconvenient to continue look, uh, looking mm. for a therapeutic potential of psychedelics. Yeah. So it was abandoned for a combination of, I think, political, ideological, and also, you know, purely pragmatic research reasons. Well, I can imagine that. I can imagine discussions in pharma boardrooms, if you've got a treatment that works, you know, with one dose, as you mentioned, that early psilocybin trial that you discovered for OCD, you know, compared to, you know, lifelong, perhaps, prescription medication. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to talk to you about how you currently feel about its safety. And interestingly, I just got off a call literally a few days ago with a research professor at Stanford University in America, who were also running their own clinical trials, you're probably aware, um, specifically looking at autonomic immune system disorders. And he said that although it was obviously early days, nothing's been published, their initial findings show psilocybin therapy to be, quote, entirely safe with no adverse events reported. I mean, that's encouraging, isn't it? But I think the system of uh, reporting of safety um, events is is different between pharma and, you know, sponsored studies and academic studies. So I think that, you know, anything that can help us can harm us. So they're not entirely innocuous. They're not entirely without harm. So everything in moderation and mm. with support of skilled therapists, then I think the, the risk, the chances of adverse events are greatly diminished. Brilliant. Well, now we understand a little bit more about the basics. I want to come back in just a moment to really dig into how psilocybin therapy might work. Don't go away. Cool. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So welcome back. And let's dig down now into psilocybin therapy. What sort of mental health and other neurological or pain-related conditions are being treated in trials? Um, so there is a variety of trials now being done in all sorts of mental health conditions. We at Compass, our leading indication is treatment-resistant depression. It's a significant burden. You know, it's around 100 million people around the world suffer with treatment-resistant depression. Wow, that 100 means, million people, treatment-resistant depression. So they've obviously tried everything. I mean, there must be billions more being treated in other ways, but treatment resistant. That's I do think it's greatly underreported. Depression in general is yeah. underreported. Sure. Um, and so it's a significant number. And those are the people who tried one, two or more approved treatments and nothing worked for them. So some of the patients in our trials, for example, have decades of unsuccessful treatments. So it's a significant, a significant issue. There's suicide, there's, you know, unemployment, yeah, family breakdown, family yeah. breakdown, all sorts of things yeah. that, you know, comes along with treatment resistant depression. So this is our lead indication. We also have very promising signals in anorexia, and anorexia is one of the deadliest mm. mental illnesses. It has one of the highest mortality rates in among all mental illnesses. And currently, there is no approved treatment, pharmacological treatments for anorexia. So if tomorrow, I need to run the study comparing existing treatments versus psilocybin. I have nothing to compare it to. Yes. 
The other indicate, very interesting indication is PTSD that we're looking at. We also did a number of studies in other indications, and of course, academic researchers are looking at indications like OCD, bipolar, body dysmorphic disorders. So we do a research program in autism, for example, at King's College, right. which has started the study. So um, it's a target-rich environment, I would yes. say, because of the self-cyber mechanism of action and because of huge unmet need, you know, that seems to be a very, very interesting exploration. Mm. It sounds like, almost like, a, you know, too good to be true. Uh, I, I mean, are, yes. are we looking at something that is going to relieve or potentially relieve all kinds of mental pain permanently? Are we looking at a short moment of time? You know, can you look at completely rewriting the brain's understanding of what's going on here mm. and, you know, change long-held beliefs. You know, you've mm. talked about uh, treatment-resistant depression having been ongoing for, for decades. Are, are you really saying that yeah. what, what's the dosage here and what's the timescale that we're talking about that you can get complete clearance from that? Yeah, so I think two things uh, are very important to understand. One is depression is hugely heterogeneous. That means that, you know, patients with depression are all very different. You know, it's a dramatic change from me being a medical doctor and having, you know, hard endpoints and, you know, being able to look at the x-ray, CAT scans and things like that. There is nothing like that in depression. There is, you know, there is a huge variety of presentation and a huge variety of subjective experiences. And therefore, I think there, there are many underlying reasons for treatment-resistant depression or depression in general. And secondly, I think there is a huge overlap between the symptoms. So it's a bit of a whack-a-mole game. So you sort of take care of symptoms of depression, anxiety comes up. When, you know, you take care of anxiety, there is some, you know, obsessive-compulsive tendency may come up. So it's, you know, I think mental health conditions are not as clearly separated, again, as, you know, many medical conditions. Mm. And therefore, I think there are many, un, you know, common underlying mechanisms and common final pathways for these conditions. And that's probably what uh, probably what makes psilocybin such an attractive compound. So am I understanding this then, that if you have treatment-resistant depression, you get treated for that potentially, you know, you might find something that works, but it might leave you with OCD, it might leave you with anxiety. Are you saying that psilocybin, actually, it has such a blanket approach that it can wipe out all of those negative conditions and might actually completely clean the slate? What I'm saying is that psilocybin probably addresses some of the more fundamental underlying mechanisms right. that are responsible for, for conditions that are seemingly separate but mm -hmm. somewhere they are connected probably on the mechanistic level. So what sort of doses are we talking about here and, and how much of a difference does a dose make? You know, we, we talk about microdosing, for example. You know, is it a dose-dependent outcome? So the, according to our research, it is dose-dependent. However, the data on the microdosing is very patchy. Uh, there is a lot of wishful thinking and a lot of placebo effect, and people right. who benefit from use of microdosing, you know, uh, they report some benefits, but the research 
has not shown any measurable benefits. Mm-hmm. More importantly, the safety of chronic administration, of chronic use of uh, psychedelic psilocybin in particular, has not been established. While these compounds have been used in kind of ritualistic settings uh, for centuries, they have never been used daily or every other day. Right. And there are some mechanisms that could give you a pause and perhaps before you consider microdosing you probably need to wait for a little more safety data at the yeah, very I least. I mean I, I, I must say I, I talked about in the introduction about being invited to Jamaica to go and try it and I did for a fraction of a moment think well that sounds like an interesting idea and then I thought actually hold on a minute we're talking about my brain here and mm-hmm. you know, I really don't know what's going to happen and I'm not sure that I want to start messing around with neurological pathways especially when I don't have Mm. treatment-resistant depression. Can I ask you, uh, from uh, your point of view, how long after dosing do you see some sort of effect? It really varies. So people who improve, improve very quickly. I mean, you're talking hours or days? Or? We're talking several, we're talking within several days. Um, they mm, improve um, fairly quickly. And they maintain, they may maintain this uh, response or remission for weeks or months. But that, you know, is additional research to see the durability of the effects and how long people maintain response or remission mm. and how we might support them uh, during this time so this period lasts longer. So that is that is still the jury is out and that's mm-hmm. part of our research you know program to understand how long and how well psilocybin works in treatment resistant depression and we're doing phase three clinical trials which is now the largest trial Gosh. with um, psychedelics. Interesting. And is it important that this is always done alongside a guide, a a therapist, a medic? You know, how does that process practically work? Yes, practically, if you're a patient in one of our studies, you would come in and meet with a therapist who will be your therapist throughout the the whole study. You'll meet with a therapist a couple of times just to get to know each other and to for the therapist to learn a little bit about you, what happened to you in your life, what events you consider significant, whether you had any trauma in the past, and what your experience with depression is. Then on the day of the psilocybin session, you would come in to a specially designed room. We take clinical room and turn it into a non-clinical environment. It's all, you know, soft furniture, um, dimmable lights. Okay, uh, we're talking sort of bean bags and joysticks and that kind of thing. No, we're not talking. We're not talking bean bags. We're not talking tie dyes on the windows. No. Uh, we don't have oriental carpets or Buddha statues. <laughs> it's all very non-stimulating, non-suggestive okay. suggestive environment. You um, take the drug, put on the eye shades, put on the headphones, and you listen to a specially designed music playlist that follows the pharmacodynamic of the drug. And so in the beginning, the music a little more emotionally evocative, so it can you know evoke some memories, um, some thinking, uh, and then it becomes more and more kind of calm along the way. So the experience usually lasts, you know, four to six hours. Oh, wow. And the therapist is with the patient 
in the room the entire time right. if the patient needs anything, if the patient becomes you know anxious or patient wants to discuss anything, the therapist is there. Uh, then the you know patients don't stay in the hospital overnight. They sort of the acute effects wear off and they have light meal and go home. And the mm-hmm. next day they come back to talk about what actually happened in the session. And that's called integration, where they talk about insights that they, they you know, were able to generate in, in the course of that session. And one of the most remarkable features of this treatment is that it changes patients' relationship with their symptoms of depression. All of a sudden, they, they get in touch with their sense of agency. The locus of control shifts from the clinician, from a therapist to the patient, and the patient is able to separate themselves from the symptoms of depression, and they have the ability to choose to engage or not to engage. It's like a mindfulness drug. So it's empowering for patients. That's how, you know, a lot of them talk about this. Interesting. And when they're actually experiencing it during that sort of six hour of treatment, what state of consciousness are we talking about here? I mean, are they, you know, to use a a colloquial term, are they high? Um, It it depends. It it really depends. So um, for some people, it's a very smooth ride and it's just the string of memories and images and they're able to kind of relax into it. The key thing about it is to go with the experience in and through. You know, if the so-called bad trips happen when you actually resist the experience and all the pain happens on the impact of this resistance. So patients especially prepared to relax into this experience and to become curious and engaged with what emerges. And that's the key. And I guess in a clinical setting with medics and monitoring, you know, you do have that safety. You're, you're feeling secure and, and that you're in a safe space and that you're being looked after by people who aren't going to let anything bad happen. Talking about that, are there side effects of the treatment that you've noticed? Adverse side effects? There are effects of the drug itself, such as change in consciousness and perception, but those are the effects of the drug. It means that the drug is is active, so they're not necessarily considered adverse events. Mm. Interesting. You talk about change of perception. I remember when I watched the documentary on, on psilocybin, many people in the clinics there were taking it who were having end-of-life treatment. And Mm -hmm. it was interesting that it had been shown to change the approach, perhaps to a lack of fear of death. So this could be potentially important in helping us to live better, live those last days, weeks, months, years that we have without that fear. Is, Is that something that you've noted? Well, that's not our population, but I know the study very well. And indeed, it's true that people's relationship, as I said, relationship with cancer, relationship with process of dying changes, and this acceptance and ability to live their lives to the fullest, all of a sudden, it becomes possible. They're no longer paralyzed by fear Mm. of death. Mm. So looking to the future then, to what extent is kind of so-called mainstream medicine on board with all of this? Um, So we started, I think, five years ago. And 
we haven't encountered any resistance. And Good. five years ago, it was incredibly, you know, very, very different environment. So it was not nearly as popular, you know, now psychedelics are in, in mainstream media every day, several times a day. Uh, and everyone seems to be on board with it. But at that time, when we first came to talk to the European Medicines Agency and FDA, we were struck how regulators on both sides of the Atlantic were acutely aware of this research, acutely aware of potential benefits, and were really interested and engaged. So we never experienced any prejudice, any pushback, and only interest in science. And the same thing is with, I would say, with mainstream psychiatry. When we started phase two trials four years ago, uh, and I was recruiting clinical trial sites, you know, I went to talk to some of the most prominent psychiatrists in the UK and Europe and the US, and everyone was interested. There was no hesitation. And when I asked one of the famous psychiatrists, I said, why are you interested in doing this study, you know, given your stature? And he said, if we can have something for these patients, anything. Mm. And I, it always stuck with me because I think that psychiatry does feel a little powerless. You know, we do have some tools in psychiatry, but they don't work always and not for everyone. And definitely, you know, we, we do need uh, much better approaches. Mm -hmm. We do need approaches that patients would value and would feel empowered. And I think psychiatry and psychology are on board with that. That's really encouraging. Last question. When are you going to be publishing your findings? That's kind of like the $24 million question, isn't it? Probably literally. Well, we just published uh, phase 2B clinical trial results in, in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was just published, I think, in November. And then we just started phase 3, which is the last phase of research leading to regulatory approval. But then, of course, right after regulatory approval comes, you know, launch. And that's when we really need to start thinking about access and how to make these treatments available to everyone regardless of their ability to pay, how to integrate, mm. how, how to create evidence that satisfies not only regulators, but also payers and national health systems and the insurers in the U.S. so they would understand the place of these treatments in the clinical care guidelines. So people who could benefit from it the most could access it regardless of their ability to pay. So it's not only for people who can go to, not to, de, you know, diminish the um, the experience of your friend, but, um, mm, sure. you know, if no, you no, can go expensive. to Jamaica yeah. and you don't have 5000 yeah. to pay for, for a session, Absolutely. you still can access and you can still benefit. And that's what we're working on. Fantastic. Ekaterina, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating chat and the very, very best of luck with all that future research. Thank you. Thank you. Whoa, absolutely fascinating. Now, obviously, taking psilocybin here in the UK outside of a regulated and government-approved trial is currently illegal. Although there are countries in the world people can go for this kind of treatment in a clinically supervised and licensed setting, including some states in the US, the Netherlands, Jamaica, the Bahamas and Brazil. But for now, here in the UK anyway, it's a case of watch this space. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ekaterina, and the very best of luck with all that future research.
Now, as I mentioned earlier, journalist and educator Mary Biles was on the show last week talking about the medical use of cannabis. It was an incredibly compelling chat, so do make sure that you listen to that one if you haven't already. And clicking the follow button wherever you're listening to this right now is the way to guarantee every new episode arrives on your device as soon as it's available. Now, one of the episodes a lot of you have been listening to and sharing, thank you, is the one with Professor Avram Blooming on oestrogen a couple of weeks ago. So Lou wrote on Instagram and she says, I'm just so grateful I have all this knowledge now. I'm in perimenopause and I'm observing a lot of new symptoms that are happening to me. To have the foresight about luring hormones and to be armed with the information you and others share is empowering to me. And it's still hard, even though I have this information, but I know I can prepare and I feel relieved that I can help myself. Well, I'm so glad that you feel a bit more prepared now, Lou. And Min feels similarly saying she nearly fell off her chair while listening. She quotes here, very interesting podcast, she says, particularly in relation to osteoporosis, which is my main concern. Thank you and Avram. Well, thank you for engaging in all of this and hopefully sharing the knowledge amongst your girlfriends, your family, your colleagues too. Okay, until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Lazarle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lazarle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.